Well, good morning and welcome to Scotts Hill Baptist Church. So glad that all of you are here today. Great to see all of you. And those of you who are joining us online, we're so grateful that you're able to join us today as well. Just want to say it's always a pleasure to have you join us, but want to say if you don't have a church home, we want to encourage you to find a church home where you can do life with other believers. And if you don't have one, love to invite you to come join us here at Scotts Hill. Anytime you can be here, we would love to have you. Well, today is a big day in our country, isn't it? It's Super Bowl Sunday, and we're getting ready to see Super Bowl 54. And two teams are going to um, face off against one another, the uh, 49ers and the Chiefs, of course. And some of you this morning, you have a team that you like and that you're pulling for, and, and you're all excited about the day. Some of you may be like me. You don't really have a team in it. You don't have a dog in this fight but you're willing to watch it and see what happens. And there's maybe a team that you might like to pull for over the other one. But all across the the world today, literally, people are going to be tuning in to watch this Super Bowl event and to see which is going to be the prevailing team at the end of the evening. And people are not only doing it all across the world, but our United States, but Miami is filled with people today. People who are paying big dollars to go to watch a professional football team or a professional football game. I did some um, research this past week and I wanted to see what was the average cost for a Super Bowl ticket. And I discovered that the average cost, now this is average, there may be some a little less, there's certainly some more, but the average cost for one Super Bowl ticket is $8,940. That's right, $8,940. That's ridiculous. So while you're watching this football game and you watch this little kid with a hot dog in his mouth, that's $8,940. Or or you see some person dressed really strangely, that's $8,940. When you look at all those people, you see all the people who have a lot more money than you and I do. And they're on television enjoying this event. Now, I also found out that you could get a villa in Miami near the stadium, um, a villa for $15,000 a night. $15,000 a night. I also read about this one package deal. Oh, it's a wonderful deal. It's a a package deal for two, that you could go to Miami by a private jet, have two tickets to the game, two nights at the Ritz-Carlton, and then after the game, have a four-night cruise on a private yacht to the Bahamas and back. It could be yours for merely $720,000. And people spend money on this kind of stuff. It is crazy. I am so glad to say and so happy to let you know that when you come to Scotts Hill, it's free. (laughs) You come here for nothing. Now, you can put something in the plate while you're here, and we certainly encourage that, but this is more than entertainment. This is something that we do here 52 times a year that we want to be able to worship together, encourage one another together, to grow in God's word together that the things that we do are not temporal, but they're eternal. And you won't remember, probably five years from now, who won the Super Bowl tonight. But you will never forget what Jesus does for you and what he continues to do in your life. We're glad that you're here this morning. We are continuing in our study that we're calling Faithful. We're looking at the book of 1 Thessalonians. It's actually a letter written to the Thessalonians in the city of Thessalonica. 
written by the Apostle Paul, and we're just breaking down this letter that he writes to them, and, and, and the theme is faithful because all through it, we see their faithfulness to the Lord during some very difficult times. Two weeks ago, we began this study, and we looked at how the Apostle Paul came to be in Thessalonica and the incredible impact that he had with those believers there. He had a three-week crusade with them. Many, many came to faith in Christ. He was probably there with them for about three months, and then he was forced out by some Jews and drove him from town to town until he eventually made his way to Corinth, and he wrote the very first book in the New Testament. He wrote this letter to the Thessalonians in Thessalonica, and this is the very first letter that we have of the New Testament. And the Apostle Paul wrote that in about 50, 51 AD. And we saw the first week that God uses unexpected people and unconventional plans to accomplish his purpose. And those who give obedience to the call of God can walk in unprecedented peace. That's what we saw week one. We got out of verse one, and last week we began looking at verses two through 10. And the Apostle Paul now gives a picture of those Christians in Thessalonica. He begins to talk about the kind of church that they were. And even though he was with them for a very short time, it was unbelievable the growth that happened among those believers. So much so that the church in Thessalonica became the model church in the New Testament. It's the only church that the Apostle Paul speaks about being a model church. And from that, we can learn a lot. So we wanted to look at one of the marks of a model church. What are the standout characteristics of a model church. And this is really what every church ought to be. And so last week we began looking at what a model church is to be. We looked at verses four and five and we discovered the first mark of a model church. We said the model church is made up of people who are chosen, people who are chosen, people who have experienced the sovereign grace of God in their lives and God, by his amazing and matchless grace, drew these people to himself, and they were never the same. And while we got into the doctrine of election, that's a very difficult doctrine. There are a lot of oppositions on both sides of the issue when they deal with the doctrine of election. And all that there is in the doctrine of election, we will never know this side of heaven, and on the other side of heaven, it won't matter. And so while we're trying to figure it out, the one thing we landed on was this, that salvation does not happen apart from God's sovereign grace. Every single person who comes to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is by the grace of God. And it's his grace that changes us, that saves us, that seals us. It's God's great work in us. And he carries that through all of our days. We said this about the doctrine of election when we closed out. The doctrine of election is not a bomb to be dropped or a banner to be waved, but a bastion of encouragement because of God's amazing love and grace that he lavishes upon us. Because of what he's done for us, this should do three things in us. And this is the mark of people who are chosen. These three things in our lives should be a heart of humility. There shouldn't be pride in the heart of any believer because we all walk by the same grace of God. And there shouldn't be pride towards people who are lost because apart from the grace of God, we too would still be in that place. So we are to be a church of humility. We're to be a church of gratitude, to give thanks to God in all things at all times 
because of his matchless love for us. And we are to walk in absolute assurance that there is nothing I need to fear because he who began a good work in me will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. I had a young lady text me this week and she said, I wrote those three words on the chalkboard at my house. And every time I walk in and walk out, I see humility, gratitude, and assurance. And it has transformed how I've lived my life this week. That's a chosen church. That we walk in humility. We walk in gratitude. We walked in assurance. Listen, if you have not listened to this message, I want to encourage you to go back and listen to it and see the big picture of what God does in our lives. So that first mark is that we're chosen people. Every child of God is chosen by the grace of God. Now, here's the second mark that we want to look at. Today, we're going to look at marks two and three, and I want to get out of chapter one today, okay? And so as we look at these, we begin in verse six, and we read all the way to verse 10. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God is going forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven." whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. As we conclude this picture of a model church, Father, would you teach us today? Father, would you convict us today? Father, would you encourage us today? Father, would you be pleased to change us today? And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. We've seen the first mark of a model church is they're made up of people who are chosen, chosen by God. But here's the second mark of a model church. The model church, a model church is made up of people who are changed, who are changed. Those God chooses, he changes. It is always the case. God does not save anyone without changing those individuals. The marks and the evidence that a person belongs to God is a changed life. It doesn't matter what you say. You can say you love Jesus all day long. But if there's been no change in your life, your life does not give evidence of true conversion. The mark of true conversion is always a changed life. And these Thessalonians were radically changed. Now, some people say, I was not radically changed, but I was changed. No, 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 no. Every believer is radically changed. You were dead, now you're alive. You were in darkness, now you're in light. You were headed for hell, now you're headed for heaven. You live by hate, now you live by love. Everything about a believer is changed. Now, that change may take longer in some areas than in other areas, but it is not going to be without change because we are changed. Now, here are four areas that these Thessalonians were changed in. 
And they were radically changed. Let me remind you of Thessalonica. It was a pagan city. About 200,000 people lived in Thessalonica. It was a Roman colony, which meant it was filled with idols and idol worship. Right in the middle of Thessalonica was a road called the Via Ignatia. And the road with the Via Ignatia was the major highway from the west to the east for the entire world. And everyone who wanted to travel that traveled that road. And that road went right to the heart of Thessalonica, bringing everything that the world has to offer to that city. And they're living in this pagan place. They grew up in this pagan place. All they know is paganism. But what we find is that there are four major changes that take place in their life. In verse 6, he says this, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. And you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. In those verses, he tells us four things that changed about them. Here's the first thing. They had a new foundation. They had a new foundation. These were people who grew up with false religions, false gods, false philosophies. Um, Thessalonica was known as a bastion of philosophy. It was also a place where many philosophers grew up. And so philosophy was the, the way of the day. They would stand around and talk about all the various philosophies of life and everybody would try to live their lives according to that. They would live by man-made religion that they had to earn their way to appease God. And they also lived in a world filled with superstition and fear. They were always superstitious about gods. They were always fearful. Matter of fact, not long ago, an archaeological dig in Thessalonica found a tomb. And on the tomb were two words, no hope. That's what the people lived like. But then they heard the message of the gospel. They heard that there is a God who actually loves them, a God who loves sinners, a God who would send his own son to die on their behalf. They'd never heard of anything like that. One who became human and lived a perfect human life, who died to take away their sins so that they would no longer be under the wrath of a God and all those who would surrender their lives to them, he would be, they would be forgiven and would have eternal life. They heard the good news. They heard the gospel. And what did they immediately do? They received it. They embraced it. And they left all the philosophies of the world they left all of the dead gods that they had been raised with. They gave up the superstition and the fear, and they embraced a life of faith. Their entire foundation changed. No longer were they driven by what their culture said. No longer were they driven by what philosophers say. They were now driven by the absolute authoritative truth of the word of God. And their new foundation was now on a God who would send his son. Instead of living by works, they now are under the grace of a holy God and it transformed their life. They were able to give up all the things of the culture. There's a new foundation. You know, the same is true of you and me. Before Christ, there were many different foundations that we may have followed. 
We may have followed all the philosophies of the world. We may have listened to the philosophies of an Oprah. We may have followed the philosophies of maybe some political leaders. We may have bought into a bunch of false religions and lies and superstitions and zodiac signs and all of those things that we were trying to find life in. But when we come to faith in Christ, all of those things fall by the side. And there's a new foundation. It's the cornerstone. It's Jesus Christ. And now this is the thing that I stand for firmly on. And while the things of the world may continue to blow around me, I am standing on the truth of the word of God. It becomes the filter for every emotion that I feel. It becomes the filter for every thought that I think. It becomes the filter for every passion that is within me. It becomes the filter for every ambition. It is the filter for every action. Here's a new foundation that guides me, and that is the change. Every child of God has a new foundation, and it's the Lord Jesus. And that's what we stand on. I grew up in a religion that was really man-centered, a religion that was works-oriented, a religion where I was taught to go to a priest because I couldn't go to God on my own. A religion that was filled with superstition and all those things. And when I gave my life to Jesus Christ, every bit of those philosophies were removed because all I need is Christ. You see, you and I, if we're genuinely changed, genuinely changed, there should be a new foundation for my life. But let me tell you the second thing about these people. They have a new focus. They have a new focus. He says, you turned from idols to the living and the true God. These people grew up in a world full of idols. Thessalonica, it was said of Thessalonica that it was easier to find a God in that city than a man because there were so many statues of gods. And not only did they worship all these false gods, these false gods were not benevolent gods. They were mean, angry, vicious, violent, self-serving. And so they walked in fear of these gods all the time. The other thing is, there was incredible immorality in that city. Credible immorality. And the immorality was tied to the worship of false gods. If you were in Thessalonica and you did not worship false gods, you were considered to be an atheist among the people. If you were in Thessalonica and you did not practice sexual immorality as you worshiped these false gods, you were considered to be a deviant of that culture. And you were odd. You were outside of the flow. But when these people came to faith in Christ, they jettisoned all the fake gods and they hung only to Christ. But not only that, they gave up sexual immorality. They became so different that the people in Thessalonica considered them to be deviant, to be atheist. And they so different that they stood out like light in the darkness. Here's the point. When you come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, there should be a different focus of your life. There should be a change in your lifestyle. There's nowhere in the Bible where it gives us the freedom to accept Jesus into a godless lifestyle and keep living a godless lifestyle. There's no room in the scripture for that. If Jesus has come into your life, then one of the other things is not only a new foundation, but there's a new focus. 
No longer do you want to be involved in those things. You want to be distinctively different from the culture. And that's what these Thessalonians were. They were so distinctively different that they stood out among everybody. Oh, how the church needs to be that today. Francis Schaeffer said this. He said, where the church, where culture is today, the church will be seven years from now. And what has happened is we have seen the church become more like the culture. But this is what we need to understand is the church is called to be distinctively different. And as we stand on the foundation of God's word and we say we will not be like the culture, the gap of immorality is growing in our culture and the gap between the culture and the church should be wider and wider and wider to such a degree that we are so different from the culture that we are like light in the darkness. And darkness is always attracted to the light. But I'm gonna tell you, When we become like the world, we attract nobody. Nobody. Because we are meant to be different. One of the things that should change within us is a new focus. So different that we are radically different. Here's the third mark. They have new fruit. A new fruit. In verse 3, he says, We give thanks to our God and Father for your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a new fruit that comes with new believers. And this new fruit is threefold. There's a work of faith. That doesn't mean it's work that leads to faith. It's the opposite. It is the evidence of faith. It is works that flow out of a faith in Christ. And those who have a faith in Christ give evident by the kind of works that they do. You are going to do different things. You're going to do things that please the heart of God. There's going to be love. There's a labor of love. The hallmark for the Christian life is that of love. What did Jesus say? By this all men shall know that you are my disciples by your wonderful Bible study groups, right? He didn't say that, did he? By this, all men will know that you are my disciples by your wonderful worship services. Didn't say that. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples by your what? Love for one another. And the mark of a church should be a mark of agape love, seeking the other person's highest good. And the last one is an expected hope. It is an absolute hope and the confidence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, a new Christian brings new fruit And the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And those are to be the things that are portrayed in our lives. But lastly, they had a new future to wait for his son from heaven. They had a new future. Here's what they knew. This is not my home. All of a sudden, now that Jesus is my Savior, I don't live for this moment. I live for eternity. And every day, I am moving towards eternity. And here's the wonderful thing about the Thessalonians. Every single day, they look forward to the return of Christ. In every single chapter in this book, it ends, each chapter, with the return of Jesus. Now, some of the Thessalonians had some warped views about the return of Jesus. It says, as you wait for him, And some people were selling their homes, camping out on a mountain, waiting for Jesus to return. That's not what the word wait means. The word wait means to actively anticipate 
his coming. They had a sense of the imminent return of Jesus, that he could come any moment. And this drove two things in their hearts. Number one, that I want to live a faithful and holy life because if he comes today, I want to be doing the things that please him. And secondly, I want a passion to tell others about Jesus. If he comes today and if I knew he was coming, I would tell everybody I know about the Lord Jesus and their need for a savior. And I think we've lost that in our culture today. I think we've lost this imminent sense of his return. Oh, there was a day when we used to talk about it a lot. We used to have all of our conferences on eschatological events and end times, and more people were more consumed with the fascination and sensationalistic approach to it than anything. But when we talk about the imminent return of Jesus, that should spur our hearts to two things. We should really think that any day he could come. Any day he could come. We used to teach our kids that. Any day he could come. I remember Ryan saying, Dad, I know any day he could come, but I sure hope he waits until after I'm married. I said, within six months, you're going to be saying, come, Jesus, come. So, <laughs> so, but it could be any day. And here's the reality, is when we live with that, there's a sense of, you know what, today I want to be caught only doing the things that please the heart of Jesus. And I want a passion that's deeper to tell others about Jesus Christ. Let me tell you what the world needs from the church. The world needs to see a changed people. It's one thing for you and me to go around and saying, oh, by God's grace, I'm saved. It's one thing for you to be able to tell people in your culture and on the job, yes, I'm a Christian. Oh, yes, God saved me by his grace. Yes, I'm grateful. I'm, I walk in humility. I walk in gratitude. I'm absolutely certain that if I died today, I would know where I'd go. But it's a different thing for you to live a changed life. Because the thing that the world wants more than anything is to see how you are different. And we wrongly think that if the church was more like the world, we would attract more people from the world. Wrong. They could get what the world has to offer anywhere at any time. It's when they see authentic believers living what they say they believe standing on a conviction of God's word, refusing the philosophies of the world, and standing with this abundant hope and confidence that the church actually becomes attractive to a world that has a tombstone that says no hope. It's only in him and church. Listen, you want to be a model church, then that means... Live a changed life. Don't buy into the lies of the culture that wants you to be like them. Stand on the truth and be like Jesus so people will come to you and say, man, I've never seen anybody like you before. And that's good. And I want to know what you have. I was a senior in high school. I gave my life to Christ. I went to a church on a Thursday night. I heard the message of the gospel. And I was gloriously saved. 
I went home that night and I told my dad about it. He got mad and slapped me. He said, you were born a Catholic, you'll die a Catholic. And I said, Dad, I was born lost. I'm going to die saved now. But I knew not to argue with my dad. So I made this commitment. I said, Lord, the next year, here's what I want to do. I want to live for you in such a way that there will be no question that I'm different. It was less than a year. My dad came to me, and he said this. He said, son, I don't know what's happened to you, but you're not the same son that I used to have. He says, you're different. He says, and I give you my blessing to go to that Baptist church now. I said, will you come watch me be baptized? He says, yes, and he did. 25 years later, I baptized my mom and dad in that same baptistry because of a changed life. Don't underestimate the power of a life changed for the glory of Jesus Christ. Never, never do it. But that is what the world needs. You see, not only are we chosen, but we're changed. We're changed. But there's one other thing, and it's so important. Because if only we camp out on the fact that we're chosen, saved by God's grace, and we're changed, saved by his power, and we go no further than that, we're nothing but monasteries. Sin. But here's the third mark of these people. The model church is made up of people who are channels. Channels of the gospel of Jesus Christ. These people were not content to get saved and to sit and then to sour. They wanted to be channels. And as we look at what happens, they become the channels in that entire area of the spreading of the gospel. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. And then verses 7 and 8, so that you became an example to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need say nothing. Wow, talk about some incredible channels. I want you to see three things about being a channel. Number one is this, they became personally involved. They became personally involved. Paul says you became imitators of us. You were not spectators, you were the imitators. You were the participants. The word imitate in the Greek literally means to mimic, to copy to follow after someone else. They said, we're not content to just listen to and get saved. You know what? We want to apply this stuff. We want to be like you, Paul. Silas, we want to be like you. Timothy, we want to be like you. Jesus, we want to be like you. And so they began to imitate the things of Christ and of godly men and women in their lives. And by doing so, they served with them. They sweated with them. They suffered with them. They were intimately involved in all that they did. The church does not consist of people who watch other people work. We are all to be involved in the life of the church. Every one of us. Let me tell you the danger of being a larger church. When you're a larger church, you have the privilege of hiring a lot of people to do a lot of tasks. Because these things need to be done. 
But sometimes in doing that, we inadvertently remove opportunities for people to serve. And people will say, well, they don't need me there because they got that person, or they don't need me there because of that person. Well, that's wrong. Every single child of God is a member of the body Christ, and every member is a minister in the body of Christ. We need every single person involved, and it is not a spectator sport. If we're going to be the kind of church that blesses the heart of the Father, we are going to be imitating each other. We're going to be growing in our walk. We're going to be serving together. We are going to be loving one another because we are brothers and sisters. We will be together for all of eternity. We might as well learn to like each other here, right? We, they were personally involved. Here's the second thing. They became the pattern for other churches. Man, I love this. He says, you are the model. It's the only church in all the New Testament that the Apostle Paul uses as a model. You are the model. The word model in the Greek is a word that literally means, um, it's used of, to mean a mark. If you bump your elbow on a door and you bruise yourself, that's called a, to, a, a tupas. A tupas is a mark, a bruise, a bump. Or if you pull a coin out of your pocket and there's, a, there's a, something engraved on it, it's called a tupas. It's marked. Or if it's, if, if it's a pattern that you use to sew something, it's called a tupas. It's a mark. It means that it becomes the pattern. The church that blesses the heart of the Father, the church that is walking as chosen people and changed people, becomes a pattern for other people. Other churches will look at the church and say, wow, you see what they're doing over there? Man, look how they love one another. Look at the great work of faith. Look how they are waiting for the Lord Jesus. Look at all the wonderful things. And you know what happens? Other churches want to follow the pattern of what's in you. We do that with other churches. They're great churches that we look at and say, man, they're doing a great job in that. We want to be better at that. How do we learn that? And rather than competing with other churches in your culture, you become a source of inspiration and helping other churches as we work together for the glory of Christ. We become the patterns. And here's the last one. They became proclaimers of the gospel. Of these three, I love this one. They became proclaimers of the gospel. Here's what, what, what Paul says. Paul says this. He says, your faith, your labor of love, your steadfastness of hope, your proclaiming the gospel has gone forth everywhere. And we don't need to say anything about it. He says, you are a sounding board. I love that phrase, a sounding board. You know what a sounding board is? We have a sound board upstairs. We use a sound board. A sound board does not create the message. It amplifies the message. And so we as believers are to be sounding boards. We don't create the message of the gospel. We amplify the message of the gospel and everywhere we go, we're speaking of the gospel. Here's what Paul was saying. He's saying that you have been so effective that the gospel is going out everywhere. Remember that Via Ignatia road that ran right through the heart of Thessalonica? Remember that? 200,000 people living in there. Every year, 500,000 people would come to Thessalonica. 
and they would hear the message of the gospel on that highway and they would go back changed and they would bring it to their homes and their countries and their villages and they were changed. When Paul says we need not say anything, he's speaking of two things. Number one, we don't even have to brag about your faith, your hope, and your love because everybody knows. And we don't even have to preach the gospel because you people in Thessalonica have preached us out of a job. Oh man, if that were true in every church. You see, we live in a culture today where it's the pastor's job to preach the gospel. It's the pastor's job to pray for the sick. It's the pastor's job to go and do this ministry and that ministry. And that's so wrong. That is a Western view. I have people call me sometimes and they'll say, Phil, my neighbor needs to hear the gospel. Will you come share the gospel with them? I say, no. No. That's your neighbor. I'll pray for you as you go tell them about Jesus. I don't have the relational leverage. You do. Pastor, will you come visit so-and-so in the hospital? Sure, I'll come visit them. But I want you to be there too. Because you're the person who has way more leverage than I do in the heart of the person. You see, the model church is a channel where every member takes seriously that they are ministers and every member goes forth and proclaims the good news of Jesus Christ. And we as pastors equip you to do the work of the ministry. It's not that we don't want to do it, we do it. But there's greater joy when you do it. There's greater impact when you do it. Please, please don't ever say this to me. You need to pray because you're closer to God than I am. That's not true. On that day, I might be further from God than you are. Because every person who is in Christ, these three things were chosen by his grace. You are a chosen people. We are changed. Let's show the world the difference that's in us, that they need. We are channels to be the channel of the gospel to people. That is a model church. That is the kind of church that blesses the heart of Jesus because the church is his bride and he wants his bride to be those things. Some of you have a new foundation in Christ, but you've been drifting back to the foundations of the world and you're confused. Some of you have been changed, but you're letting some of the old things of the past come back in. And you are not distinctively different, nor are you attractive to a dying world. Some of you, it's been a long time since you've been a channel of blessing. Because life's been about you. If we want that kind of church... If we want to be a church filled with people who are walking in the grace of God, if we want to be a church that is filled with people who are walking in humility and gratitude 
and assurance, if we want to be the kind of church that demonstrates a changed new foundation and focus and fruit and future, if we want to be a church that are channels, then you need to be a Christian who are those things. Because the church is made up of believers who have been brought together for the glory of God to impact our world and to await his return. In a word, we are to be a faithful church. Let me encourage you today. If you're a child of God, you've been changed. Let me encourage you today. If you believe in God, but nothing about your life has been changed, my friend, there's one thing missing. Believing in Jesus is not the same thing as believing Jesus. Believing in Jesus is nothing more than demonic faith. The demons believe and shudder. But believing Jesus means I take him at his word. I surrender my life to him. I trust him with my life for his glory and for my good. Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. As we close this service out, as the band comes, and Father, we sing about Christ being our cornerstone. May this song be a declaration in our hearts that we want to be that kind of church. We want to be the kind of church, Father, that our community would miss if we're gone. We want to be the kind of church that is a light in the darkness. In Jesus' name, amen.